First thing is that uh, ever since my voice had a meltdown three weeks ago, it hasn't been completely back to normal. Um, and even this morning, I'm feeling, you know, even during Sunday school, I was nearing the brink. And uh, so I'm going to have to be uh, gentle this morning because I have to sing in a concert this afternoon. So I'm going to have to listen with bigger ears. Second of all, um, the, uh, the sermon I originally was planning to preach this morning, um, you know, as I prepared, I have a tendency to try to cram too much, and so sometimes I have to make a decision to, to divide and conquer, and so I, uh, I, just, I divided into two sermons. And uh, so, to, so we can keep sort of focus and simplicity. Remember, this is the first uh, sermon in the passage that I referred to you to talk to you about earlier about praying for me, because this is uh, we're going into a section that's that's uh, not easy. But I mean, it's a challenge to understand to some degree, but it's also a challenge to, to preach. And I hope, and I thank those of you who have been faithful to pray and those who have forgotten to pray. I want to remind you that the, the, the Puritan said, bad preaching is God's judgment on a prayerless congregation. Okay. So, before we read the passage this morning, I want to do one little uh, explanation um, because the passage talks about the old covenant and the new covenant and I want to explain what that is referring to before we even start so that as I read the passage it will make sense to you. I know most of you under, already understand the old covenant and the new covenant but for the few who don't I just want to explain it. Um, the old covenant refers to the covenant that God made with the people of Israel under Moses, after he led them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea and brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there he entered into covenant with them, and part of that was that he gave them his law, he gave them the Ten Commandments, and he gave them the wider law as well as we find it in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And uh, they actually went through a ceremony and God entered into a solemn covenant with his people there. Then the new covenant is the covenant that, that God established through Christ. Um, in fact, as, we, as is reflected in our practice of the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper when Jesus was with his disciples, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And uh, so Jesus was initiating the new covenant. And this was, uh, this was a covenant that didn't just come out of the blue. It was in advance anticipated in the book of Jeremiah in 31. Where I will give you a new covenant. It won't be like the covenant I gave with your fathers. And uh, so they were they should have been anticipating the covenant, but there are two different covenants. And this passage that we're entering into today, Paul contrasts the old covenant and the new covenant. 
and the superiority of the new covenant over the old. So let's read together 2 Corinthians 3, 6 to 16. And, th- and so today I'm basically going to introduce this passage and then we'll spend three more weeks on it, sort of looking at different aspects of it. Uh, we already read verse 6 uh, last week, but that's where we pick it up because he begins to talk about it, that, this subject here in verse 6. He's talking about how God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, obviously referring to the Ten Commandments, now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So beginning in verse 6, as you just heard, Paul begins a comparison of the new covenant and the old covenant. Now, when you're just reading along, this seems like it comes out of left field. Because it doesn't seem to have much to do with what Paul's been talking about. And this, before we go on, I want to um, make a comment just about the way that we approach the New Testament. And in particular, the epistles of the New Testament. Because there's quite a or debate between certain New Testament scholars over the nature of the epistles of the New Testament. Um, some argue, and this, this was a debate that was very much uh, going on in my seminary when I was it, at seminary. Some would argue that the new, in the New Testament epistles we have case studies of how the gospel of Jesus interacted with a given culture at a given time just to sort of give us a taste of how the gospel impacts 
various peoples at various times. And so what that leads to is it leads to not really needing to figure out the details of what was happening in the, in the epistles and why certain things were written and uh, because it was just sort of an illustration to us of, of uh, how the gospel was manifested at that time. But it, didn't, it doesn't really relate to us very directly. The other opinion, of course, and the one that I believe, is that we have a sovereign God who knew what he wanted to say to us, knew the needs of his people, down through the corridors of history, he knew all kinds of things that we were going to face, he knew what we needed to hear, and he sovereignly ordained the various situations that were going to occur so that he might speak his word to us so that we got exactly what we need so that um, we do need to very much try to understand what is happening in these passages so that we can learn from them because we need what they have to say to us. So that brings us back to the issue of why is Paul, you know, he's been sort of responding to the false accusations of his opponents in the church at Corinth. And why all of a sudden is he talking about the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant? I don't think he's randomly changed the subject. You know, you may, you may occasionally, <clears throat> I know Marianne and I, sometimes we're in a conversation and then one of us just starts talking in a way that the other person has no idea what they're talking about. And it's because, you know, our, one of our thoughts just went in a different direction. You know, maybe something that we're talking about causes us to think of something else, and that causes us to think of something else. And all of a sudden, we bring something up, and it's like, what are you talking about? Has that ever happened to you? Well, so, you know, is that what's happening here in, in Paul? I don't think so. I think that Paul's uh, thought can be traced. Um, it seems to me that Paul is addressing the superiority of the new covenant because his opponents that he's just been discussing though they acknowledge Christ are promoting an old covenant framework and that is at the heart of what the problem is and why they're, what they're teaching is so dangerous and so by arguing for the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, Paul is actually refuting his opponents and continuing along the same lines. So let's talk a little bit more then about these opponents of Paul who were in the Corinthian church. One of the things that we find out about them is that they were Jewish. Now, Corinth is not a Jewish city. Corinth is a Gentile city. And so it's surprising to us that there would be a group 
of Jews in, the Gentile, in this Gentile church. However, we know that, that this happened over and over again. That Paul would preach the gospel in a given city. People would come to faith. And then after Paul left, groups of Jews who um, would come sort of follow in his footsteps and begin to infiltrate the churches where he administered and begin to feed them some bad stuff. But this, how do we know that they were Jews? Well, we, he's, this is clear from 2 Corinthians 11.22 where Paul is entered into this, he's actually embarrassed about it where he's sort of um, they're boasting in who they are and he's sort of having to promote himself to some degree and he's very embarrassed about it and he keeps falling all over himself in that embarrassment. But he says in 11.22 Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Well in that you can see that his opponents were Jewish. But not only were they Jewish? They were boastful of their Judaism. This is one of the things they kept putting out there was their Judaism. And this gives us a hint about who they were and what the problem was. These men were Jews who came to Corinth after Paul and used their Jewishness to worm their way into positions of influence among the predominantly Gentile church, they were Judaizers. Judaizers. Although, probably by this time, the Judaizing movement, and we'll talk about what Judaizers are in a minute, so don't, don't get off the train, um, but the Judaizing movement seemed, had to adapt because it was big before the Council of Jerusalem, which we read about in Acts 15. It was big in Galatia when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians. But, but it got refuted in a sense, at least part of it got refuted at the Council of Jerusalem. So it had to adapt, but it didn't seem to have gone away. Um, at first... They were uh, trying to convince the Gentile believers in Galatia that they had to become Jews in order to be Christians, in order to be saved, in order to be a part of God's people. They had to become Jews. They had to go through circumcision and, and take upon themselves the, the law of the Jews, the ceremonies and such. And Paul confronts their teaching in his letter to the Galatians. And then it comes to a head in the Council of Jerusalem and things like the circumcision and ceremonial law get put aside by the council and say, no, Gentiles don't need to do these things. But as I said, this didn't seem to have put the whole thing to an end. And, you know, we're talking about Judaizers. The word Judaizer comes from the word Judaism. Basically, the Judaizers were men who were trying to Judaize the Christian church. 
trying to um, pull the Christian faith into the context of Judaism. Even though they had left behind some of their obvious heresies after the Council of Jerusalem, Paul still considered them, when he's writing this letter, his enemies and enemies of the gospel and not friends. He says this clearly in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So they were the bad guys in Paul's understanding. Now our passage this morning, this uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 3, 6 to 16, indicates that they, it seems to indicate anyway, that they are now filling the minds of the Corinthian believers with deceptive notions that Moses was still the main man. Maybe Jesus has joined Moses, but he certainly hasn't superseded Moses. And the, the central f- feature of the Christian life is still the obeying of God's law. Let's dig a little deeper into the way that the thinking of the Judaizers got where it got and where they went wrong. As you can imagine, Judaism was a big deal to devout first century Jews. Some of them thought Judaism was everything. They, in their minds, Israel and the God of Israel were so closely identified that they were really one and the same. Really, you know, you couldn't talk about one in distinction from the other. And they expected the Messiah, when the Messiah came, to enhance the glory of Judaism. They did not expect when the Messiah came that he would sort of sideline Judaism, which is exactly what happened. That he would so shine so brightly that Judaism, it would be like the moon and the sun, you know. You have this glorious moon shining brightly in the night sky and then the sun comes up and who cares about the moon anymore? It just looks so dim, you can't even find it in the sky. And that's sort of the way it was when Jesus came. You know, Judaism was the light of the world and then Jesus shows up and all of a sudden Judaism is an afterthought. And this was hard for them. This idea, this thing where Jesus became the center, where Jesus was everything, and where the whole world now was um, his his, uh, kingdom, or the place of his kingdom, this was hard for them. Even though some of them accepted Jesus as the Messiah, they were still trying to cram him into their thinking of who the Messiah was supposed to be, this one who would come and enhance Judaism. They saw him, you know, maybe becoming as great as Moses or Abraham, but superseding them 
That was too far. Now, Jesus, this idea that Jesus was going to outshine Judaism was already in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, for instance, it says this about him. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant. This is God speaking to the Messiah. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. Now that's, that's too small a job for you, too unglorious a, a task for you to fulfill. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You know, it's just not enough for you to just redeem Israel and just to enhance Jerusalem, enhance Judaism. That's not a big enough job for you. You're going to save the world. You know, it's like when it rains. It, all, it rains all the time and the rain follows very similar patterns. And it goes in the little streams and it goes into the little places and it gets bigger and eventually ends up in rivers and those rivers flow out to the ocean and everybody's happy. But every once in a while it rains in such a way that the river beds and the creek beds cannot contain the rain. And the rain rises up and pretty soon it just makes its own way. It doesn't follow the paths that were already there for it. It turns the world, think about the flood of Noah, it turned the world into its riverbed. And that's what happened when Jesus came. Like the water of life raining down upon the world and the riverbed of Judaism just wasn't big enough to contain it. And so it burst out of its framework and it flooded the world. Jesus came and, and you know, they would, they would never think that he could be greater than Abraham. Abraham was the big one, you know. And so Jesus talking in John 8, and they say, Who are you making yourself out to be? Are you greater than our father Abraham? You know, how dare you think that you could be as great or even greater than Abraham? And amazingly, Jesus responds. It just blows them out of the water. He doesn't just say, yes, say, yes, I'm greater than Abraham. He says to them, truly, truly, pay attention. This is true. This is, may, may be hard to believe, but this is true. Truly, truly, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Wow, that is really better, bigger than Abraham. You know, that is not just a little brighter. You know, we have competitions and somebody, you know, finishes a little bit ahead of the other and we say he's first place and he's second place. But that kind of category doesn't apply. When one comes who says, before Abraham was, I am. He calls himself by God's name and says that not only, you know, is he on Abraham's level? But he was in existence before Abraham ever walked on the earth. You know, 2,000 years earlier. 
The Christian faith exalts Jesus as the big thing, that far, who far outshines Abraham and Moses and the law and even Judaism itself. Like John the Baptist, all of those great patriarchs and prophets of the Old Testament are not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. He came to fulfill the old, but he also came to exceed and supersede the old. Christ was much more than like the missing piece that had to be added to the puzzle of Judaism to complete it, to bring it to its final masterpiece form, you know? He was the building block that was rejected, which became the cornerstone of a whole new world. Psalm 118.22 talks about this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You know, a cornerstone isn't like the capstone. Capstone is the last stone you put in. You know, everything's on place. It's already beautiful. It's all set up. And all it needs is this last little piece to get it lowered into place. And yes, look what a beautiful thing it is. A cornerstone is the first stone, not the last stone. It's when you start a project, Jesus came as the cornerstone. And they wanted him to be the capstone. You know, they wanted him to be the last thing that, that brought all the glory of Judaism to, to the attention of the world. Jesus says, no, the stone that which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of a whole new world. Christ is the glory of God. They thought that Judaism was the glory of God, including the Messiah, of course. But you can't cram Jesus into Judaism. Sure, he was of Jewish blood. No denying that. But you can't limit him in the confines of Judaism. They wanted to make Christianity like a, a form of Judaism, a branch of Judaism. They kept trying to get the Gentiles to conform to the practices and cultures of the, the culture of the Jews in order to be saved or in order to enjoy Christian fellowship. That's why we call them Judaizers. They were trying to Judaize Christianity. But they preached a message in which Christ was being fit into a context of Moses. But as Jesus himself anticipated this, they were pouring new wine into old wineskins. They were sewing a patch of new cloth onto an old garment. And it just won't work. And you know what happens? You know, so you have an old garment. 
and you sew on a new patch. And it, how, how does it not work? You know, Jesus tells us what gets broken, the patch gets broken. In other words, the gospel, when you try to sew the gospel onto the context of Judaism, the gospel gets ruined. And that's what happened with the Judaizers. The gospel got ruined because of the way that, that they were trying to cram it into their Judaism. Paul goes on in our passage to refute some of their thinking. Describing ways that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And how you can't, we can't go back to that. We can't live with that old way of thinking. He makes three major points. And we're going to take one week to look at the, these three. The first point is that the old covenant is primarily a covenant of letter. And as such was a ministry of death. The new covenant on the other hand is a covenant of spirit and therefore a ministry of life. So we'll talk about that next week. Then the second point he makes is that the new covenant had far, has far more glory than the old covenant had. We'll talk about that in two weeks. And then the third point he makes is that the old covenant has now lost its glory. It was originally designed to lose its glory, to fade. But that the new covenant is permanent and eternal. Now, before we close, let me just go through a couple of aspects of this and why this is so important to us. Why it's so important to us. The first thing is that this, what I'm going to call Old Testament Christianity, which is really what the, Jew, the Judaizers were promoting, this Old Testament Christianity is still a problem today. It's taken many different forms, but in my belief, in my opinion, the vast majority of, Christ, of what has gone in the name of Christianity throughout history is Old Testament Christianity. Where it's either moralism, where we're just following the rules, or it's ceremonialism, where it's just relying on the ceremonies. All of which is Old Testament Christianity. You know, you know what Satan's number one focus is? Satan's number one focus, I would suggest, is the gospel. And he is striving to come up with ways that he can twist the gospel. That he can distort it. That he can change it. That he can put it through adaptations to take the heart of it. To look the same. To taste the same. You know, scientists spend lots and lots of effort and lots and lots of money to come up with things that taste like sugar but aren't sugar. They, and that's exactly what Satan does. He's doing the same thing. He's got his laboratories and he's got his demons out there and they're working overtime coming up with alternatives to the gospel that taste sweet but aren't really sugar. And so Old Testament Christianity is one of the 
is, uh, and many ways it manifests itself, is one of the best inventions, in my opinion, that Satan's ever come up with. We find it here in the New Testament, we find it down through the pages of history, we find it all around us today. We'll talk about this more next week. But the second reason why this is so important is because it helps us to see what the Judaizers did wrong. It also applies to all of us. That trying to fit Jesus into our little boxes of what's important to us is, is just as fatally flawed for us as it was for them. There are a lot of people, and often we try. We try to cram Jesus into our little thing, whatever that thing is. But Jesus doesn't fit. Jesus does a lot of things well. Jesus does a lot of things well. But one thing Jesus does not do well is fit into our boxes. He came as Lord. He came as Lord. He does not relinquish his lordship. He does not compromise his lordship. He does not let him negotiate little bits of his lordship away. He is Lord. Absolutely, finally, eternally. He outshines everything else. He's bigger than our family. He's, you know, I, I remember when I was in seminary, I went to a church and there was this uh, woman that was coming to the church each week and then her husband started showing up. You know, he's sort of like trying this church thing out. And uh, he came and he came probably two or three months until one sermon and then he never came back. What was that sermon about? It was about marriage. And it was one comment that the pastor just made in passing in that sermon. He referred to the fact that in heaven there will be no more marriage. And that was the stumbling block. That man could not accept that you know, he didn't want to go to a heaven if he wasn't with his wife there. You see, for him... His marriage was everything. And he, he was looking for Jesus. He could fit into that box. Jesus is Lord. He doesn't fit into boxes. And so he's bigger than our family. He's bigger than our education. He's bigger than our career. He's bigger than our sexual orientation. He's bigger than our identity. He's bigger than our philosophy of life. He's bigger than our political point of view. You, you can't invite Jesus into your little box and think that you're going to have the real Jesus. You can't add Jesus to your life. Your life must become Jesus. If he comes into your life, he comes as Lord. To rule, to be preeminent, to be first in all things. He doesn't do well as second, or third, or fourth. It's not because of pride. Fitting Jesus into second place would be like fitting a hurricane 
into a shoebox. Just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And so, what, what many people do, they can't deal with the Jesus as he is. And so they have a new and improved Jesus. They invented Jesus that will fit in. And that's exactly what these Judaizers did. And in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, Jesus, I mean, Paul says that they are proclaiming another Jesus. It's a different Jesus. And that's what people do. He doesn't fit in with, their, with the way they, they like things. So he, they create a new Jesus and they say, okay, now we believe in Jesus and he does what we want him to do. Now they would never speak that way. But they look for a smaller Jesus. A more flexible Jesus. A more adaptable Jesus. They, the Judaizers invented a Jesus who fit into the box of Judaism. Then they could have Jesus and also have their precious Judaism. And so, it's just as true for us as it is for them. And, and uh, it's just as true in today's church as it was in the first century church. And these are, so I hope we can see that these things are so important to us. They're not just some um, ancient document about, you know, what, what, uh, how Jesus related to a, um, or the apostles related to a certain church that was in Greece back then. But this is God's word for us because this is what we need. We need this guidance. We need this insight. So that we might, you know, like it says, it's useful and it's helpful for correction, for teaching, for, for knowing how to live, for knowing how to think. It's, it's God's word for us. Now let us come to the table of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that you have blessed us with your word. And we thank you, dear Father, now that you have blessed us with the sacrament. And dear Lord, we don't come here because we know that, we think that somehow magically there's, a, we can have power over you or power over the creation by doing this ceremony. We recognize, O oh Lord, that you gave it to us as a discipline in order that we might remember who our Lord is and what he did for us. And that so that we could um, rededicate ourselves to you and open our hearts to you even as we ceremonially open our mouths to this bread and body which symbolize our Lord's, this bread and wine which symbolize our Lord's body and blood. Now be with us, Lord. Feed us in our souls. Help us to draw near to your precious Son. We pray in his name. Amen.